0: Pod Bless Robert Mueller, a translation for Texans. Brought to you by the makers of Pod Bless Texas, featuring Kendall Scudder and Lillian Salerno.
1: Okay, team,
0: guess who's joining us?
1: I'm here. What are you doing, sleepyhead? I'm not sleepy. It's just not anymore. <laughs> you just slept through five parts. I told you I was in for as much as I could. <laughs> <laughs> I was willing to bring substitute readers, but you wanted to keep it pure. Well you got here right when it got it got good. What now? Yeah. Volume I two. Know. This is
0: when it's getting good. This is what everybody says is the best part. I know.
1: Gosh, how they've been just uh turning this into something that it isn't. What a production. Oh my god. Don't gosh. comment on it because you might date it. Okay. Don't want to <laughs> let's read it
0: (laughs) okay um so we are starting at volume two at the introduction um and i guess let's just go ahead and take it away thanks for sticking through the whole first volume fam yeah they stuck through you were asleep but like i couldn't pronounce all the russian names that was rough were you just trying your best again yeah it was it was not good (laughs) one guy i just started calling him the r-man it was bad
1: (laughs) We probably should have looked into that, getting someone to tell us how to pronounce stuff. I don't even care that much. Go ahead. Let's start. Introduction to
0: volume two. This report is submitted to the attorney general pursuant to 28 CFR section 608 C, which states that at the conclusion of the special counsel's work, he shall provide the attorney general a confidential report explaining the prosecution or declination decisions the special counsel reached. Beginning in 2017, the President of the United States took a variety of actions towards the ongoing FBI investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election and related matters that raised questions about whether he had obstructed justice. The order appointing the special counsel gave this office jurisdiction to investigate matters that arose directly from the FBI's Russia investigation, including whether the President had obstructed justice in connection with Russia-related investigations. The Special Counsel's jurisdiction also covered potentially obstructive acts related to the Special Counsel's investigation itself. This volume of our report summarizes our obstruction of justice investigation of the President. We first describe the considerations that guided our obstruction of justice investigation and then provide an overview of this volume. First, a traditional prosecution or declination decision entails a binary determination to initiate or decline a prosecution, but we determine not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment. The, of course they did. The Office of Legal Counsel, OLC has issued an opinion finding that the indictment or criminal prosecution of a sitting president would in, would impermissibly undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions in violation of the constitutional separation powers. Given the role of the special counsel as an attorney in the Department of Justice and the framework of the special counsel's regulations, this office accepted OLC's legal conclusion for the purpose of exercising prosecutorial jurisdiction. And, apart from OLC's constitutional view, we recognize that a federal criminal accusation against a sitting president would place burdens on the president's capacity to govern and potentially preempt constitutional processes for addressing presidential misconduct. Second, while the OLC opinion concludes that a sitting president may not be prosecuted, it recognizes that a criminal investigation during the president's term is permissible. The OLC opinion also recognizes that a president does not have immunity after he leaves office. (laughs) (laughs) And if individuals other than the president committed an obstruction offense, they may be prosecuted at this time. Given those considerations, the facts known to us, and the strong public interest in safeguarding the integrity of the criminal justice system, we concluded a thorough factual investigation in order to preserve the evidence when memories were fresh and documentary materials were available. Third, we considered whether to evaluate the conduct we investigated under the Justice Manual standards governing prosecution and declination decisions, but we determined not to apply an approach that could potentially result in a judgment that the President committed crimes. The threshold step under the Justice Manual standards is to assess whether a person's conduct constitutes a federal offense. Fairness concerns counseled against potentially reaching that judgment when no charges can be brought. The ordinary means for an individual to respond to an accusation is through a speedy and public trial with all the procedural protections that surround a criminal case. An individual who believes he was wrongfully accused can use that process to seek to clear his name. In contrast, a prosecutor's judgment that crimes were committed, but that no charges will be brought, affords no such adversarial opportunity for public name clearing before an impartial adjudicator. The concerns about the fairness of such a determination would be heightened in the case of a sitting president, where a federal prosecutor's accusation of a crime, even in an internal report, could carry consequences that extend beyond the realm of criminal justice. OLC noted similar concerns about sealed indictments. Even if an indictment were sealed during the president's term, OLC reasoned it would be very difficult to preserve an indictment's secrecy. And if the indictment became public, the stigma and proprobrium, <laughs> opprobrium—is <laughs> that know. the word? What's the word there? I think
1: that's it. I attorney mean, I, lady, I am an attorney, but I. am Opprobrium. Only that word we're going to say I, the I, stigma
0: I, and opprobrium could imperil the president's ability to govern. Although a prosecutor's internal report would not represent a formal public accusation akin to an indictment, the possibility of the report's public disclosure and the absence of a neutral adjudicary forum to review its findings counseled against potentially determining that the person's conduct constitutes a federal offense. Fourth, If we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. I'm going to read that again. Say that again. Fourth, if we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, however, we are unable to reach that judgment.
1: Which is basically telling Congress you're supposed to act.
0: Step up and do something, assholes. The evidence we obtained in the president's actions and intent presents difficult issues that prevent us from conclusively determining that no criminal conduct occurred. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. This report on our investigation consists of four parts. Section 1 provides an overview of obstruction of justice principles and summarizes certain investigatory and evidentiary considerations. Section 2 sets forth the factual results of our obstruction investigation and analyzes the evidence. Section 3 addresses statutory and constitutional defenses. Section 4 states our conclusion.
1: Executive Summary to Volume 2. Our obstruction of justice inquiry focused on a series of actions by the president that related to the Russian interference investigations, including the president's conduct towards the law enforcement officials overseeing the investigations and the witnesses to relevant events, factual results of the obstruction investigation. The key issues and events we examined included the following. The campaign's response to reports about Russian support for Trump. During the 2016 presidential campaign, questions arose about the Russian government's apparent support for candidate Trump. After WikiLeaks released politically damaging Democratic Party emails that were reported to have been hacked by Russia, Trump publicly expressed kept skepticism that Russia was responsible for the hacks at the same time that he and other campaign officials privately sought information. Redacted Harm to Ongoing Matter. WikiLeaks, as of um, June 2016, the Trump Organization had been pursuing a licensing deal for a skyscraper to be built in Russia called Trump Tower Moscow. After the election, the president expressed concerns to advisors that reports of Russia's election interference might lead the public to question the legitimacy of his election. Conduct involving FBI Director Comey and Michael Flynn in mid-January 2017, incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn falsely denied to the Vice President, other administration officials, and FBI agents that he had talked to Russian Ambassador Sergey Gislak about Russia's responses to the U.S. sanctions on Russia for its election interference. On January twenty seventh, the day after the President was told that Flynn had lied to the Vice President and had made similar statements to the FBI, The president invited Director Comey to a private dinner at the White House and told Comey that he needed loyalty. On February 14th, the day after the president requested Flynn's resignation, the president told an outside advisor, now that we fix Flynn, the Russia thing is over. The advisor disagreed and said the investigations would continue. Are you kidding me right now? Isn't that unbelievable? Later that afternoon, the president cleared the Oval Office to have a one-on-one meeting with Comey. Referring to the FBI's investigation of Flynn, the president said, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go. He is a good guy. I hope you can let this go. Shortly after requesting Flynn's resignation and speaking privately to Comey, the president sought to have Deputy National Security Advisor K.T. McFarland draft an internal letter stating that the president had not directed Flynn to discuss sanctions with Kislyak. McFarland declined because she did not know whether that was true, and a White House counsel's office attorney thought that the, the request would look like a quid pro quo for an ambassadorship she had been offered. The president's reaction to the continuing Russian investigation. In February 2017, Attorney General Jeff Sessions began to accept, assess whether he had to recuse himself from campaign-related investigations because of his role in the Trump campaign. In early March, the president told White House counsel Donald McGahn to stop Sessions from recusing. And after Sessions announced his recusal on March 2nd, the president expressed anger at the decision and told the advisors that he should have an attorney general who would protect him. That weekend, the president took Sessions aside at an event and urged him to unrecuse later in March, Comey publicly disclosed at a congressional hearing that the FBI was investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the two thousand and sixteen presidential election, including any link links or coordination between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. in the following days, the president reached out to the Director of National Intelligence and the leaders of the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency to ask them what they could do to publicly dispel the suggestion that the president had any connection to the Russian election and interference effort. The president also twice called Comey directly, notwithstanding guidance from McGahn to avoid direct contacts with the Department of Justice. Comey had previously assured the president that the FBI was not investigating him personally, and the president asked Comey to lift the cloud of the Russia investigation by saying that publicly. Unbelievable. The president's termination of Comey. On May 3rd, 2017, Comey testified in a congressional hearing, but declined to answer questions about whether the president was personally under investigation. Within days, the president decided to terminate Comey. The President insisted that the termination letter, which was written for public release, state that Comey had informed the President that he was not under investigation. The day of the firing, the White House maintained that Comey's termination resulted from independent recommendations from the Attorney General and Deputy Attorney General that Comey should be discharged for mishandling the the Hillary Clinton email investigation but the president had decided to fire Comey before hearing from the Department of Justice. The day after firing Comey, the president told Russian officials that he had faced great pressure because of Russia, which had been taken off by Comey's firing. The next day, the president acknowledged in a television interview that he was going to fire Comey regardless of the Department of Justice recommendation and that when he decided to just do it, he was thinking that, This thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. In response to a question about whether he was angry with Comey about the Russia investigation, the president said, As far as I'm concerned, I want that thing to be absolutely done properly, adding that firing Comey might might even lengthen the investigation. The appointment of a special counsel and efforts to remove him. On May 17, 2017, the acting attorney general for the Russia investigation appointed a special counsel to conduct the investigation and in related matters. The president reacted to news that a special counsel had been appointed by telling advisors that it was the end of his presidency, if only, and demanding that Sessions resign. Sessions submitted his resignation, but the president ultimately did not accept it. The president told aides that the special counsel had conflicts of interest and suggested that the special counsel, therefore, could not serve. The president's advisors told him the asserted conflicts were meritless and had already been considered by the Department of Justice. On June 14, 2017, the media reported that the special counsel's office was investigating whether the president had obstructed justice. Press reports called this a major turning point in the investigation while Comey had told the president he was not under investigation. Following Comey's firing, the president now was under investigation. The president reacted to this news with a series of tweets criticizing the Department of Justice and the special counsel's investigation. On June 17, 2017, the president called McCann at home and directed him to call the acting attorney general and say that the special counsel had conflicts of interest and must be removed. McGahn did not carry out the direction, however, deciding that he would resign rather than trigger what he regarded as a potential Saturday night massacre. Efforts to curtail the special counsel investigation. Two days after directing McGahn to have the special counsel removed, the president made another attempt to affect the course of the Russia investigation. On June 19th, 2017, the president met one-on-one in the Oval Office with his former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, a trusted advisor outside the government, and dictated a message for Lewandowski to deliver to Sessions. The message said that Sessions should publicly announce that, notwithstanding his recusal from the Russia investigation, The investigation was very unfair to the president. The president had done nothing wrong, and Sessions planned to meet with the special counsel and let him move forward with investigating election meddling for future elections. Lewandowski said he understood what the president wanted Sessions to do. One month later, in another private meeting with Lewandowski on July 19, 2017, The president asked about the status of his message for Sessions to limit the special counsel investigation to future election interference. Lewandowski told the president that the message would be delivered soon. Hours after that meeting, the president publicly criticized Sessions in an interview with the New York Times and then issued a series of tweets, making it clear that Sessions' job was in jeopardy. Lewandowski did not want to deliver the president's message message personally, so he asked senior White House official Rick Dearborn to deliver it to Sessions. Dearborn was uncomfortable with the task and did not follow through. Efforts to prevent public disclosure of evidence. In the summer of 2017, the president learned that media outlets were asking questions about the June 9, 2016 meeting at Trump Tower between senior campaign officials, including Donald Trump Jr., and a Russian lawyer who was said to be offering damaging information about Hillary Clinton as part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump. On several occasions, the president directed aides not to publicly disclose the emails setting up the June 9th meeting, suggesting that the emails would not leak and that the number of lawyers with access to them should be limited. Before the emails became public, the president edited a press statement for Trump Jr., by deleting a line that acknowledged that the meeting was with an individual who, Trump Jr., was told might have have information helpful to the campaign and instead said only that the meeting was about adoptions of Russian children. When the press asked questions about the president's involvement in Trump Jr.'s statement, the president's personal lawyer repeatedly denied that the president had played any role further efforts to have the Attorney General take control of the investigation. In early summer 2017, the President called Sessions at home and again asked him to reverse his recusal from the Russia investigation. Sessions did not reverse his recusal. In October 2017, the President met privately with Sessions in the Oval Office and asked him to take a look at investigating Clinton. In December 2017, shortly after Flynn pleaded guilty pursuant to a, cooperat- a cooperation agreement, the president met with Sessions in the old office and suggested, according to notes taken by a senior advisor, that if Sessions unrecused and took back supervision of the Russia investigation, he would be a hero. The president told Sessions, I'm not going to do anything or direct you to do anything. I just want to be treated fairly. In response, Sessions volunteered that he had never seen anything improper on the campaign and told the president there was a whole new leadership team in place. He did not unrecuse. Efforts to have McGahn deny that the president had ordered him to have the special counsel removed. In early 2018, the press reported that the president had directed Don McGahn to have the special counsel removed in June 2017 and that McGahn had threatened to resign rather than carry out the order. The president reacted to the news story by directing White House officials to tell McGahn to dispute the story and create a record stating he had not been ordered to have the special counsel removed. McGahn told these officials that the media reports were accurate and stating that the president had directed McGahn to have the special counsel removed. The president then met with McGahn in the Oval Office and again pressured him to deny the reports. In the same meeting, the president also asked McGahn why he had told the special counsel about the president's effort to remove the special counsel and why McMahon took notes of his conversations with the president. McGahn refused to, t- to back away from what he remembered happening and perceived the president to be telling testing his mettle. Conduct towards Michael Flynn Manafort, harm to ongoing investigation, redacted. After Flynn withdrew from a joint defense agreement with the president and began cooperating with the government, the president's personal counsel left a message for Flynn's attorneys, reminding them of the president's warm feelings towards Flynn, which he said still remains, and asking for a heads up if Flynn knew information that implicates the president. When Flynn's counsel reiterated that Flynn could no longer share information pursuant to a joint defense agreement, the president's personal counsel said he would make sure that the president knew that Flynn's actions released reflected hostility towards the president. During Manafort's prosecution and when the jury in his criminal trial was deliberating, the president praised Manafort in public and said that Manafort was being treated unfairly and declined to rule out a pardon. After Manafort was convicted, the president called Manafort a brave man for refusing to break and said that flipping almost ought to be outlawed. Redacted Harm to Ongoing Matter Conduct Involving Michael Cohen The president's conduct towards Michael Cohen, a former Trump Organization executive, changed from praise for Cohen when he falsely minimized the president's involvement in the Trump Tower Moscow project to castigation of Cohen when he became a cooperating witness. From September 2015 to June 2016, Cohen had pursued the Trump Tower Moscow project on behalf of the Trump Organization and had briefed candidate Trump on the project numerous times, including discussing whether Trump should travel to Russia to advance the deal. In 2017, Cohen provided false testimony to Congress about the project, including stating that he had only briefed Trump on the project three times and never discussed travel to Russia with him, in an effort to adhere to a party line that Cohen said was developed to minimize the president's connections to Russia. While preparing for his congressional testimony, Cohen had extensive discussions with the president's personal counsel, who, according to Cohen, said that Cohen would stay on message and not contradict the president. After the FBI searched Cohen's home and office in April 2018, the president publicly asserted that Cohen would not flip, contacted him directly and told him to stay strong, and privately passed messages of support to him. Cohen also discussed pardons with the president's personal counsel and believed that if he stayed on message, he would be taken care of. But after Cohen began cooperating with the government in the summer of 2018, the president publicly criticized him, calling him a rat, and suggested that his family members had committed crimes. This is just like a mob boss. Overarching factual issues. We did not make a traditional prosecution decision about these facts. But the evidence we obtained supports several general statements about the president's conduct. Several features of the conduct we investigated distinguish it from typical obstruction of justice cases. First, the investigation concerned the president and some of his actions, such as firing the FBI director, involved facially lawful acts within his Article II authority, which raises constitutional issues discussed below. At the same time, the president's position as the head of the executive branch provided him with unique and powerful means of influencing official proceedings, subordinate officers, and potential witnesses, all of which is relevant to a potential obstruction of justice analysis. Second, unlike cases in which a subject engages in obstruction of justice to cover up a crime, the evidence we obtained did not establish that the president was involved in an underlying crime related to Russian election interference. Although the obstruction statutes do not require proof of such a crime, the absence of that evidence affects the analysis, the analysis of the President's intent and requires consideration of other possible motives for his conduct. Third, many of the President's act directed at witnesses, including discouragement of cooperation with the government and suggestion of possible future pardons, took place in public view. That circumstance is unusual. But no principle of law excludes public acts from the reach of the obstruction laws. If the likely effect of public acts is to influence witnesses or alter their testimony, the harm to the justice system's integrity is the same. Although the series of, event we, of events we investigated involved district, discrete acts, the overall pattern of the president's conduct towards the investigation can shed light on the nature of the president's acts and the inferences that can be drawn about his intent. In particular, the actions we investigated can be divided into two phases, reflecting a possible shift in the president's motives. The first phase covered the period from the president's first interactions with Comey through the president's firing of Comey. During that time, the president had been repeatedly told he was not personally under investigation. Soon after the firing of Comey and the appointment of the special counsel, however, the president became aware that his own conduct was being investigated in an obstruction of justice inquiry. At that point, the president engaged in a second phase of conduct involving public attacks on the investigation, non-public efforts to control it, and efforts in both public and private to encourage witnesses not to cooperate with the investigation judgments about the nature of the president's motives during each phase would be informed by the totality of the evidence. Statutory and constitutional defenses. The president's counsel raised statutory and constitutional defenses to a possible obstruction of justice analysis of the conduct we investigated. We concluded that none of these legal defenses provide a basis for declining to investigate the facts. Statutory defenses. Consistent with Precedent and the Department of Justice general approach to interpreting interpreting obstruction statutes, we concluded that several statutes could apply here. C 18 U.S.C. 1503, 1505, 1512 B3, 1512 C2, Section 1512 C2 is an omnibus obstruction of justice provision that covers a wide range of obstruction. Acts directed at pending or contemplated official proceedings. No principle of statutory construction justifies narrowing the provisions to cover only conduct that impairs the integrity or availability of evidence. Sections 1503 and 1505 also offer broad protections against obstructive acts directed at pending grand jury, judicial, administrative, and congressional proceedings, and they are supplemented by a provision in Section 1512B aimed specifically at conduct intended to prevent or hinder the communication to law enforcement of information related to a federal crime. Constitutional defenses. As for constitutional defenses arising from the president's status as the head of the executive branch, we recognize that the Department of Justice and the courts have not definitively received resolve these issues. We therefore examine those issues through the framework established by Supreme Court precedent governing separation of power issues. The Department of Justice and the President's personal counsel have recognized that the President is subject to statutes that prohibit obstruction of justice by bribing a witness or suborning perjury because that conduct does not implicate his constitutional authority. With respect to whether the president can be found to have obstructed justice by exercising his powers under Article 2 of the Constitution, we concluded that Congress has authority to prohibit a president's corrupt use of his authority and in, or- in order to protect the integrity of the administration of justice. Under applicable Supreme Court precedent, the Constitution does not categorically and permanently Im- immunize a president for obstructing justice through their use of his Article II powers. The separation of powers doctrine authorizes Congress to protect official proceedings, including those of courts and grand juries, from corrupt, obstructive acts, regardless of their source. We also concluded that any inroad or presidential authority that would occur from prohibiting corrupt acts does not undermine the president's ability to fulfill his constitutional mission. The term corruptly sets a demanding standard. It requires a concrete showing that a person acted with an intent to obtain an improper advantage for himself or someone else, inconsistent with official duty and the rights of others. A preclusion of corrupt official action does not diminish the president's ability to exercise Article II powers. For example... The proper supervision of criminal law does not demand freedom for the president to act with a corrupt intention of shielding himself from criminal punishment, avoiding financial liability, or preventing personal embarrassment. To the contrary, a statute that prohibits official action undertaken for such corrupt purposes furthers rather than hinders the impartial and even-handed administration of the law. It also aligns with the president's constitutional duty to faithfully execute the laws. Finally, we concluded that in the rare case in which a criminal investigation of the president's conduct is justified, inquiries to determine whether the president acted for a corrupt motive should not impermissibly chill his performance of his constitutionally assigned duties. The conclusion that Congress may apply The obstruction laws to the President's corrupt exercise of the powers of office accords with our constitutional system of checks and balances and the principle that no person is above the law. Conclusion Because we determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment, we did not draw ultimate ultimate conclusions about the President's conduct. The evidence we obtained about the President's actions and intent presents difficult issues that would need to be resolved if we were making a traditional prosecutorial judgment. At the same time, if we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit the obstruction of justice, we would so state, based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, we are unable to reach that judgment. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. 1. Background
0: Legal and Evidentiary Principles A. For legal Framework of Obstruction of Justice The May 17, 2017 appointment order and the special counsel regulations provide this office with jurisdiction to investigate federal crimes committed in the course of and with intent to interfere with the special counsel's investigation, such as perjury, obstruction of justice, destruction of evidence, and intimidation of witnesses. Because of that description of our jurisdiction, we sought evidence for our obstruction of justice investigation with the elements of obstruction offenses in mind. Our evidentiary analysis is similarly focused on the elements of such offenses, although we do not draw conclusions on the ultimate questions that govern the prosecutorial decision under the principles of federal prosecution. Here, we summarize the law interpreting the elements of potentially relevant obstruction statutes in an ordinary case. This discussion does not address the unique constitutional issues that arise in an inquiry into official acts by the president. Those issues are discussed in a later section of this report addressing constitutional defenses that a president's counsel have raised. Three basic elements are common to most of the relevant obstruction statutes. An obstructive act, a nexus between the obstructive act and an official proceeding, and a corrupt intent. We describe those elements as we have been interpreted by the courts. We then discuss a more specific statute aimed at witness tampering and describe the Wick requirements for attempted offenses and endeavors to obstruct justice. Obstructive Act Obstruction of justice law reaches all corrupt conduct capable of producing an effect that prevents justice from being duly administered regardless of the means employed. An effort to influence a proceeding can qualify as an endeavor to obstruct justice, even if the effort was subtle or circuitous, and however cleverly or with whatever cloaking of purpose it was made. The verbs obstruct or impede are broad, and can refer to anything that blocks, makes, difficult, or hinders. Internal brackets and quotation marks omitted. I don't know why I'm all that... An improper motive can render an actor's conduct criminal even if the conduct would otherwise be lawful and within the actor's authority. Any act by a party, whether lawful or unlawful on its face, may abridge Section 1503 if performed with a corrupt motive. Nexus to a pending or completed official proceeding. Obstruction of justice law generally requires a nexus or connection to an official proceeding. In Section 1503, the nexus must be to pending judicial or grand jury proceedings. In Section 1505, the nexus can include a connection to a pending federal agency proceeding or a congressional inquiry or investigation. Under both statutes, the government must demonstrate a relationship in time, causation, or logic between the obstructive act and the proceeding or inquiry to be obstructed. Section 1512C prohibits obstruction efforts aimed at official proceedings, including judicial or grand jury proceedings. For purposes of Section 1512, an official proceeding need not be pending or about to be instituted at the time of the offense. Although a proceeding need not already be in progress to trigger liability under Section 1512C, a nexus to a a contemplated proceeding still must be shown. The nexus requirement narrows the scope of obstruction statutes to ensure that individuals have fair warning of what the law prescribes. The nexus showing has subjective and objective components. As an objective matter, a defendant must act in a manner that is likely to obstruct justice, such as the statute excludes defendants who have an evil purpose but use means that would only unnaturally or improbably be successful. The endeavor must have the natural and probable effect of interfering with the due administration of justice. As a subjective matter, the actor must have contemplated a particular foreseeable proceeding. A defendant need not directly impede the proceeding. Rather, a nexus exists if discretionary actions of a third person would be required to obstruct the judicial proceeding if it was foreseeable to the defendant that the third party would act on the defendant's communication in such a way as to obstruct the judicial proceedings. Corruptly. The word corruptly provides the intent element for obstruction of justice and means acting knowingly or dishonestly or with an improper motive. To act corruptly means to act with an improper purpose and to engage in conduct knowingly and dishonestly with the specific intent to subvert and peter instruct the relevant proceedings. As used in Section 1505, the term corruptly means acting with an improper purpose, personally or by influencing, another. Interpreting corruptly to mean wrongful, immoral, depraved, or evil, and holding that acting knowingly corruptly in 18 U.S.C. Section 1512b requires consciousness of wrongdoing. The requisite showing is made when a person acted with an intent to obtain an improper advantage for himself or someone... Else inconsistent with official duty and the rights of others. Witness tampering. A more specific provision in Section 1512 prohibits tampering with a witness, making it a crime to knowingly use intimidation or corruptly persuade another person to engage in misleading conduct towards another person with the intent to influence, delay, or prevent the testimony of any person in any official proceeding or to hinder, delay, or prevent the communication to a law enforcement officer of information relating to the commission or possible commission of a federal offense. (sighs) That was a mouthful, Lillian. To establish corrupt persuasion, it is sufficient that a defendant asked a potential witness to lie to investigators in contemplation of a likely federal investigation into his conduct. The persuasion need not be coercive, intimidating, or explicit. It is sufficient to urge, induce, ask, argue, give reasons, or coach or remind witnesses by planting misleading facts. Corrupt persuasion is shown where a defendant tells a, par- a potential witness a false story as if the story were true, intending that the witness believe the story and testify to it. It also covers urging a witness to recall that uh, to recall a fact that the witness did not know, even if the fact was actually true. Corrupt persuasion also can be shown in certain circumstances when a person with an improper motive urges a witness not to cooperate with law enforcement. When the charge is acting with the intent to hinder, delay, or prevent the communication of of information of law enforcement under Section 1512B3, the nexus to a proceeding inquiry articulated in Aguilar that the individual have knowledge that his actions are likely to affect the judicial proceeding. 515 U.S. at 599 does not apply because the obstructive act is aimed at the communication of information to investigators, not at impeding an official proceeding. Acting knowingly, corruptly, requires proof that the individual was conscious of wrongdoing. Declining to explore the outer limits of this element, but indicating that an instruction was, infor- was infirm where it permitted conviction, even if the defendant honestly and sincerely believed that the conduct was lawful. It is an affirmative defense that the conduct consisted solely of lawful conduct and that the defendant's sole intention was to encourage, induce, or cause the other person to testify truthfully. Attempts and endeavors. Section 1512C2 covers both substantial obstruction offenses and attempts to obstruct justice. Under general principles of attempt law, the person is guilty of an attempt when he has the intent to commit a substantive offense, substantive offense and takes an overt act that constitutes a substantial step towards that goal. The act must be substantial in that it was strongly collaborative of a defendant's criminal purpose. While mere abstract talk does not suffice, any concrete and specific acts uh, that corroborate the defendant's intent can constitute a substantial step. Thus, soliciting an innocent agent to engage in conduct constituting an element of the crime may qualify as a substantial step. The Omnibus Clause of 18 U.S.C. 1503 prohibits an endeavor to obstruct justice which sweeps more broadly than Section 1512's attempt provision. Duh, everyone knows that, Lillian. It was well established that an obstruction of justice offense is complete when one corruptly endeavors to obstruct or impede the, the due administration of justice. The prosecution need not prove that the due administration of justice was actually obstructed or impeded. B. Investigative and Evidentiary Considerations After the appointment of the special counsel, this office obtained evidence about the following events related to potential issues of obstruction of justice involving the President of the United States. A. The President's January 27th 2017 dinner with former FBI director James Comey in which the president reportedly asked for Comey's loyalty one day after the white house had been briefed by the department of justice on contacts between former national security advisor, Michael Flynn and the Russian ambassador B the president's February 14th, 2017 meeting with Comey in which the president reportedly asked Comey not to pursue an investigation of Flynn C The President's private request to Comey to make public the fact that the President was not the subject of an FBI investigation and to lift what the President regarded as a cloud. D. The President's outreach to the Director of National Intelligence and the Directors of the National Security Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency about the FBI's Russia investigation. E. The President's stated rationales for... Terminating Comey on May 9, 2017, including statements that could reasonably be understood as acknowledging that the FBI's Russia investigation was a factor in Comey's determ- termination. And F, the president's reported involvement in issuing a statement about the June 9, 2016 Trump Tower meeting between Russians and senior Trump campaign officials that said the meeting was about adoption and omitted that the Russians had offered to provide the Trump campaign with derogatory information about Hillary Clinton. Taking into account that information and our analysis of applicable statutory and constitutional principles discussed below in Volume 2, Section 3, we determined that there was a sufficient factual and legal basis to further investigate potential obstruction of justice issues involving the President. Many of the core issues in the obstruction of justice investigation turned on an individual's actions and intent. We therefore requested that the White House provide us with documentary evidence in its possession on the relevant events. We also sought and obtained the White House's concurrence in our conducting interviews of White House personnel who had relevant information. And we interviewed other witnesses who had pertinent knowledge, obtained documents on a voluntary basis when possible, and used legal process where appropriate. These investigative steps allowed us to gather a substantial amount of evidence. We also sought a voluntary interview with the president. After more than a year of discussion, the president declined to be interviewed. Redacted grand jury. Hang on. Can we talk about that little section for a second? The sentence was, we also sought a voluntary interview with the president. After more than a year of discussion, the president declined to be interviewed. And then there's a redacted sentence. What could that be about? Ooh. Oh, no, I gotta keep reading. During the course of our discussions, the president did agree. I played it, you just can't hear it because you don't have the headphones on. Oh, Oh, that's how headphones work, Lillian. Lillian really loves the yee haw. During the course of our discussions, the president did agree to answer written questions on certain Russia related topics, and he provided us with answers. He did not similarly agree to provide written answers to questions on obstruction topics or questions on events during the transition. Ultimately, while he believed that we had the authority and legal justification to issue a grand jury subpoena to obtain the president's testimony, we chose not to do so.
1: He should have gone in front of a grand jury.
0: Why do you think they didn't do
1: that? I mean, it may just be because the kind of special counsel that we had was not like What we had during. He's not like an attack dog. He was. He was within the Department of Justice.
0: So. I guess we could have just kept reading. We made that decision in view of the substantial delay that such an investigative step would likely produce at a late stage in our investigation. We also assessed that based on a significant body of evidence, we had already obtained the president's actions and his public and private statements describing or explaining those actions, we had sufficient evidence to understand relevant events and to make certain assessments about the president's testimony. The office's decision-making process on this issue is described in more detail in Appendix C, in a note that precedes the president's written responses. In assessing the evidence we obtained, we relied on common principles that apply in any investigation. The issue of criminal intent is often inferred from circumstantial evidence. Guilty knowledge can rarely be established by direct evidence. Therefore, mens re elements such as knowledge or intent may be proved by circumstantial evidence. The government's case rested on circumstantial evidence, but the mens rea elements of knowledge and intent can often be proved through circumstantial evidence and the reasonable interferences drawn therefrom. Inferences drawn therefrom. The principle that intent can be inferred from circumstantial evidence is a necessity in criminal cases, given the right of a subject to assert his privilege against compelled self-incrimination under the Fifth Amendment, and therefore decline to testify. Accordingly, determinations on intent are frequently reached without the opportunity to interview an investigatory subject. Obstruction of justice cases are consistent with this rule. Relying on significant circumstantial evidence that the defendant was conscious of her wrongdoing in an obstruction case, because evidence of intent will almost always be circumstantial, a defendant may be found culpable where the reasonable and foreseeable consequences of her acts are the obstruction of justice. Circumstantial evidence that illuminates intent may include a pattern of potentially obstructive acts. Evidence of a crime, wrong, or other act may be admissible to prove motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, plan, knowledge, identity, absence of mistake, or lack of accident. Credibility judgments may also be made based on objective facts and circumstantial evidence. Standard jury instructions highlight a variety of factors that are often relevant in assessing credibility. These include whether a witness had a reason not to tell the truth, whether the witness had a good memory, whether the witness had the opportunity to observe the events about which he testified, whether the witness's testimony was, corro- was corroborated by other witnesses, and whether anything the witness said or wrote previously contradicts his testimony. In addition to those general factors, we took into account more specific factors in assessing the credibility of conflicting accounts of the facts. For example, contemporaneous written notes can provide strong corroborating evidence. The fact that a statement appeared in the contemporaneously reported report could tend strong to corroborate the investigator's version of the interview. Similarly, a witness's witness's recitation of his account before he had any motive to fabricate, also supports the witness's credibility. A consistent statement that predates the motive is a square rebuttal of the charge that the testimony was contrived as a consequence of that motive. Finally, a witness's false description of an encounter can imply consciousness of wrongdoing. Noting the well-settled principle that false exculpatory statements are evidence, often strong evidence of guilt. We applied those settled legal practices in evaluating the factual results of our investigation. I always get the most boring parts to read.
1: That was interesting. Yeah. Factual results of the obstruction investigation. This section of the report details the evidence we obtained. We first provide an overview of how Russia became an issue in the 2016 presidential campaign and how candidate Trump responded. We then turn to the key events that we investigated the president's conduct concerning the FBI investigation of Michael Flynn, the president's reaction to public confirmation of the FBI's Russia investigation, events leading up to and surrounding the termination of FBI Director Comey, efforts to terminate the special counsel, efforts to curtail the scope of the special counsel's investigation, efforts to prevent disclosure of information about the June 9th 2016 Trump Tower meeting between Russia and senior campaign officials, efforts to have the Attorney General unrecuse, and conduct towards McGann, Cohen, and other witnesses. We summarize the evidence we found and then analyze it by reference to the three statutory obstruction of justice elements, obstructive act, nexus to a proceeding, and intent. We focus on elements because, by regulation, the special counsel has jurisdiction to investigate federal crimes committed in the course of and with intent to interfere with the special counsel's investigation, such as perjury, obstruction of justice, destruction of evidence, and intimidation of witnesses. 28 Code of Federal Regulations, Section six hundred four a Consistent with our jurisdiction to investigate federal obstruction crimes, we gathered evidence that is relevant to the elements of those crimes and analyze them within an elements framework while refraining from reaching ultimate conclusions about whether crimes were committed for the reasons explained above. This section also does not address legal and constitutional defenses raised by counsel for the president. Those defenses are analyzed in Volume 2, Section 3. A. The campaign's response to reports about Russia's support for Trump. During the 2016 campaign, the media raised questions about a possible connection between the Trump campaign and Russia. The questions intensified after WikiLeaks released politically damaging Democratic Party emails that that were reported to have been hacked by Russia. Trump responded to questions about possible connections to Russia by denying any business involvement in Russia, even though the Trump Organization had pursued a business project in Russia as late as June 2016. Trump also expressed skepticism that Russia had hacked the emails at the same time as he and other campaign advisors privately sought information. Redacted About any further planned WikiLeaks releases After the election, when questions persisted about possible links between Russia and the Trump campaign, the president-elect continued to deny any connections to Russia, and privately expressed concerns that reports of Russian election interference might lead the public to question the legitimacy of his election. 1. Press reports allege links between the Trump campaign and Russia. On June 16, 2015, Donald J. Trump declared his intent to seek nomination as the Republican candidate for president. By early 2016, he distinguished himself among Republican candidates by speaking of closer ties with Russia, saying he would get along well with Russian President Vladimir Putin, questioning whether the NATO alliance was obsolete, and praising Putin as a strong leader. The press reported that Russian political analysts and commentators perceived Trump as favorable to Russia. Beginning in February 2016 and continuing throughout the summer, The media reported that several Trump campaign advisors appeared to have ties to Russia. For example, the press reported that campaign advisor Michael Flynn was seated next to Vladimir Putin at an RT gala in Moscow in December 2015 and that Flynn had appeared regularly on Russian TV as an analyst. The press also reported that foreign policy advisor Carter Page had ties to a Russian state-run gas company. And that campaign chairman Paul Manafort had done work for the Russian-backed former Ukrainian pre- president Viktor Yanukovych. In addition, the press raised questions during the Republican National Committee—I'm sorry—in addition, the press relate, raised questions during the Republican National Convention about the Trump campaign's involvement in changing the Republican platform stance on giving weapons to Ukraine to fight Russian and rebel forces. The Trump campaign reacts to WikiLeaks' release of hacked emails. On June 14, 2016, a cybersecurity firm that had conducted in-house analysis for the Democratic National Committee posted an announcement that Russian government hackers had infiltrated the DNC's computer and obtained access to documents. On July 22, 2016, the day before the Democratic National Convention, WikiLeaks' posted thousands of hacked DNC documents revealing sensitive internal deliberations. Soon thereafter, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager publicly contended that Russia had hacked the DNC emails and arranged their release in order to help candidate Trump. On July 26, 2016, the New York Times reported that U.S. intelligence agencies had told the White House they now have high confidence that the Russian government was behind the theft of emails and documents from the Democratic National Committee. Within the Trump campaign, aides reacted with enthusiasm to reports of the hacks, redacted harm to ongoing matter, and discussed with the uh, campaign officials that WikiLeaks would release the hacked material. Some witnesses said that Trump himself discussed the possibility of upcoming releases. Redacted. Harm to ongoing matter. Michael Cohen, then Executive Vice President of the Trump Organization and Special Counsel to Trump, recalled hearing redacted harm to ongoing matter. Cohen recalled that Trump responded. Oh, good. All right. And Redacted harm to ongoing matter. Manafort said that shortly after WikiLeaks' July 22, 2016 release of hacked documents, he spoke to Trump. Redacted harm to ongoing matter. Manafort recalled that Trump responded that Manafort should... Redacted harm to ongoing matter. Keep Trump updated. Deputy Campaign Manager Rick Gates said that Manafort was getting pressure about redacted harm to ongoing manner information and that Manafort instructed Gates redacted harm to ongoing manner status updates on upcoming releases. Around the same time, Gates was with Trump on a trip to an airport Redacted Harm to Ongoing Matter, and shortly after the call ended, Trump told Gates that more releases of damaging information would be coming. Redacted Harm to Ongoing Matter was discussed within the campaign, and in the summer of 2016, the campaign was planning a communication strategy based on the possible release of Clinton emails by WikiLeaks. Number three the Trump campaign reacts to allegations that Russia was seeking to aid candidate Trump. To, in the days that follow WikiLeaks, July 22nd, 2016 release of hacked DNC emails, the Trump campaign publicly rejected suggestions that Russia was seeking to aid candidate Trump. On July 26, 2016, Trump tweeted that it was crazy to suggest that Russia was dealing with Trump and that for the record, he had zero investments in Russia. In a press conference the next day, July 27, 2016, Trump characterized, characterized this whole thing with Russia as a total deflection and stated that it was far-fetched and ridiculous. Trump said that the assertion that Russia had hacked the emails was unproven, but stated that it would give him no pause if Russia had Clinton's emails. Trump added, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the... Th- 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Trump also said that there's nothing that I can think of that I'd rather do than have Russia friendly as opposed to the way we are right now. And in in response to a question about whether he would recognize Crimea as Russian territory and consider lifting sanctions, Trump replied, we'll be looking at that. Yeah, we'll be looking. During the press conferences, Trump repeated, I have nothing to do with Russia. Five times. He stated that the closest he came to Russia was that Russians may have purchased a home or condos from him. Five times. He said it five (laughs) times? Only five times. I have some
0: beef with you right now, Lillian. Why aren't you doing a Trump impression? When I had his quotes earlier, I did a Trump impression.
1: I didn't know that. think you
0: should give it a shot.
1: I really can't do it. Give it a shot. All right. I'll try He said that after he held the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow in 2013, he had been interested in working with Russian companies that wanted to put a a lot of money into developments in Russia. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I can do. I can only do like a mean one. Where is it? Except for I can try to do like a mob boss. You know, I'm Italian. Okay. But it never worked out. He explained...
0: Frankly, I didn't want property in Moscow
1: and other places, but we decided not to do it. There you go. That's good. (laughs) The Trump Organization had been pursuing a building project in Moscow, the Trump Tower Moscow Project, from approximately September 2015 through June 2016. And the candidate was regularly updated on developments, including possible trips by Michael Cohen to Moscow to promote the deal and by Trump himself to finalize it. Cohen recalled speaking with Trump after the press conference about Trump's denial of any business dealings in Russia, which Cohen regarded as untrue. Trump told Cohen that Trump Tower Moscow was not a deal yet and said, Why mention it if it isn't a deal? According to Cohen, at around this time, in response to Trump's disavowal of connections to Russia, campaign advisors had developed a party line that Trump had no business with Russia and no connections to Russia. Oh, my God. I know. Just lie, lie.
0: This is so much worse than everyone says it is. I
1: know. I mean, this is why we want people to listen. we got to get people to listen. We've got to get people I to mean, listen to this. I mean, any American that if reads this. If not for our ego. <laughs> it's not just for ratings. No, any American that has any kind of, uh, I don't know, puts the flag out in front of their yard on July 4th or has a kid that went to the military this makes you physically ill. Yeah, it should, for yeah. sure. In addition to denying any connections with Russia, the Trump campaign reacted to reports of Russian in ele- election interference in aid of the campaign by seeking to distance itself from Russian contacts. For example, in August 2016, foreign policy adviser J.V. Gordon declined an invitation to Russian Ambassador Sergey Kislyak's residence because the timing was not optimal. In view of media reports about Russian interference. On August 19, 2016, Manafort was asked to resign amid media coverage, scrutinizing his ties to a pro-Russian political party in the Ukraine and links to Russian business. And when the media published stories about Page's connections with Russia... In 2016, Trump campaign officials terminated Page's association with the campaign and told the press that he had played no role in the campaign. On October 7, 2016, WikiLeaks released the first set of emails stolen by a Russian intelligence agency from Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta. The same day, the federal government announced that the Russian government directed the recent compromises of emails from U.S. persons and institutions, including from U.S. political organizations. The government statement directly linked Russian hacking to the release on WikiLeaks with the goal of interfering with the presidential elections and concluded that, the only, that only Russia's senior-most officials could have authorized these activities based on their scope and sensitivity. On October 11, 2016, Podesta stated publicly that the FBI was investigating Russia's hacking and said that candidate Trump might have known in advance that the hacked emails were going to be released. Vice presidential candidate Mike Pence was asked whether the Trump campaign was in cahoots with WikiLeaks and releasing damaging Clinton-related information and responded, nothing could be further from the truth. Number four. After the election, Trump continued to deny any contacts or connections with Russia or that Russia aided his election. On November 8, 2016, Trump was elected to president. Two days later, Russian officials told the press that the Russian government had maintained contacts with Trump's immediate entourage during the campaign. In response, Hope Hicks, who had been the Trump campaign spokesperson, said, we are not aware of any campaign representative that was in touch with any foreign entities before yesterday, and Mr. Trump spoke with many world leaders. Hicks gave an additional statement denying any contacts between the campaign and Russia. It never happened. There was no communication between the campaign and any foreign entity during the campaign. On December 10, 2016, the press reported that U.S. intelligence agencies had concluded that Russia interfered in last month's presidential election to boost Donald Trump's bid for the White House. Reacting to the story the next day, President-elect Trump stated, I think it's ridiculous. I think it's just another excuse. He continued that no one really knew who was responsible for the hacking, suggesting that the intelligence community had no idea if it's Russia or China or somebody. It could be somebody sitting in a bed someplace the president-elect also said that Democrats were putting out the story of Russian interference because they suffered one of the greatest defeats in the history of politics. On December 18, 2016, Podesta told the press that the election was distorted by the Russian intervention and questioned whether Trump campaign officials had been in touch with the Russians. The same day, incoming chief of staff Ryan Priebus appeared on Fox News and declined to say whether the president-elect accepted the intelligence community's determination that Russia intervened in the election. When asked about any conduct or coordination between the campaign and Russia, Priebus said, "Even this question is insane. Of course, we didn't interfere. It didn't interfere with the Russians." Priebus added that this whole thing is a spin job and said the real question is why the Democrats are doing everything they can to delegitimize the outcome of the election. On December 29, 2016, the Obama administration announced that in response to Russian cyber operations aimed at the U.S. election, it was imposing sanctions and other measures on several Russian individuals and entities. When first asked about the sanctions, President-elect Trump said, I think we ought to get on with our lives. He then put out a statement that said, it's time for our country to move on to bigger and better things, but indicated that he would meet with intelligence community leaders the following week for a briefing on Russian interference. The briefing occurred on January 6, 2017. Following the briefing, the intelligence community released the public version of his assessment, which concluded with high confidence that Russia had intervened in the election through a variety of means with the goal of harming Clinton's electability. The assessment further concluded that with high confidence, Putin and the Russian government had developed a clear preference for Trump. Several days later, BuzzFeed published unverified allegations compiled by former British intelligence officer Christopher Steele during the campaign about candidate Trump's Russia connections under the headline, these reports allege Trump has deep ties to Russia. In a press conference the next day, the president-elect called the release an absolute disgrace and said, I have no dealings with Russia. I have no deals that could happen in Russia because we've stayed away. So I have no deals. I have no loans and I have no dealings. We could make deals in Russia very easily if we wanted to. I just want—I just don't want to because I think that would be a conflict. Several advisors real. Recall that the president-elect viewed stories about his Russian connections, the Russian investigations, and the intelligence community assessment of Russia interference as a threat to the legitimacy of his electoral victory. Hicks, for example, said that president-elect viewed the intelligence community assessment as his Achilles' heel because even if Russia had no impact on the election, people would think Russia helped him win, taking away from what he had accomplished. Sean Spicer, the first White House communications director, recalled that the president thought the Russia story was developed to undermine the legitimacy of his election. Gates and the president viewed the Russia investigation as an attack on the legitimacy of his win. And Priebus recalled that when the intelligence assessment came out, the president-elect was concerned people would question the legitimacy of his win. B. The President's Conduct Concerning the Investigation of Michael Flynn Overview During the presidential transition, incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn had two phone calls with the Russian Ambassador to the United States about the Russian response to U.S. sanctions imposed because of Russia's election interference. After the press reported on Flynn's conduct, with the Russian ambassador, Flynn lied to incoming administration officials by saying he had not discussed sanctions on the calls. The officials publicly repeated those lies in press interviews. The FBI, which previously was investigating Flynn for other matters, interviewed him about the calls in the first week after the inauguration, and Flynn told similar lies to the FBI. On January 26, 2017, Department of Justice officials notified the White House that Flynn and the Russian ambassador had discussed sanctions and that Flynn had been interviewed by the FBI. The next night, the president had a private dinner with FBI Director James Comey, in which he asked for Comey's loyalty. On February 13, 2017, the president asked Flynn to resign. The following day, the president had a one-on-one conversation with Comey in which he said, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go. Evidence 1. Incoming National Security Advisor Flynn discusses sanctions on Russia with Russian Ambassador Sergey Kislyat. Shortly after the election, President-elect Trump announced he would appoint Michael Flynn as a National Security Advisor. For the next two months, Flynn played an active role on the presidential transition team, coordinating policy positions and communicating with foreign government officials, including Russian ambassador to United States, Sergey Kislyak. On December 29, 2016, as noted in Volume 2, Section 2A.4, two, the Obama administration announced that it was imposing sec- sanctions and other measures on several Russian individuals and entities, that day, multiple members of the presidential transition team exchanged emails about the sanctions and the impact they would have on the incoming administration, and Flynn informed members of the presidential transition team that he would be speaking to the Russian ambassador later in the day. Flynn, who was in the D- Dominican Republic at the time, and KT McFarland, who was slated to become the deputy national security advisor and was at the Mara. Barilago resort in Florida with the president-elect and other senior staff talked by phone about what if anything Flynn should communicate to Kislyak about the sanctions. McFarland had spoken with incoming administration officials about the sanctions and Russia's possible responses and thought she had mentioned in those conversations that Flynn was scheduled to speak with Kislyak. Based on those conversations, McFarland informed Flynn that incoming administration officials at Barilago did not want Russia to escalate the situation. At 4.43 p.m. that afternoon, McFarland sent an email to several officials about the sanctions and, for, and informed the group that General Flynn is talking to Russian ambassador this evening. Approximately one hour later, McFarland met with the president-elect and senior officials and briefed them on the sanctions and po- Russia's possible responses. Incoming Chief of Staff Reince previous recalled that McFarland may have mentioned at the meeting that the sanctions situations could be cooled down and not escalated. McFarland recalled that at the end of the meeting, someone may have mentioned to the President-elect that Flynn was speaking to the Russian ambassador that evening. McFarland did not recall any response to the President-elect. Previous recalled that the President-elect viewed the sanctions as an attempt by the Obama administration to embarrass him by delegitimizing his election. Immediately after discussing the sanctions with McFarlane on December 29, 2016, Flynn called Kislyak and requested that Russia respond to the sanctions only in a reciprocal manner, without escalating the situation. After the call, Flynn briefed McFarlane on his, its substance. Flynn told McFarlane that the Russian response to the sanctions was not going to be escalating because Russia wanted a good relation with the Trump administration. On December 30, 2016, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that Russia would not take retaliatory measures in response to the sanctions at that time and instead would plan further steps to restore Russian-U.S. relations based on the policies of the Trump administration. Following that announcement, the president-elect tweeted, Great move on delay by V. Putin. I always knew he was very smart. On December 31st, 2016, Kislyak called Flynn and told him that Flynn's requests had been received at the highest levels and Russia had chosen not to retaliate in response to the request. Later that day, Flynn told McFarlane about his follow-up conversation with Kislyak and Russia's decision not to escalate the situation based on Flynn's requests. McFarland recalled that Flynn thought his phone call had made a difference. Flynn spoke with other incoming administration officials that day, but does not recall whether they discussed the sanctions. Flynn recalled discussing the sanctions issue with incoming administration official Stephen Bannon the next day. Flynn said that Bannon appeared to know about Flynn's conversation with Kislyak, and he and Bannon agreed that they had stopped the train on Russia's response to the sanctions. The sanctions. On January 3rd, 2017, Flynn saw the president-elect in person and thought that they discussed the Russian, the Russian reaction to the sanctions, but Flynn did not have a specific recollection of telling the president-elect about the substance of his calls with Kislyak. Members of the intelligence community were surprised by Russia's decision not to retaliate in response to the sanctions. When analyzing Russia's response, they became aware of Flynn's discussion of sanctions with Kislyak. Previously, the FBI had opened an investigation of Flynn based on his relationship with the Russian government. Flynn's contacts with Kislyak became a key component of that investigation. Number two, President-elect Trump is briefed on the intelligence community's assessment of Russian interference in the election, and Congress opens election interference investigation. On January 6, 2017, as noted in Volume 2, Section 2, a four intelligence officials briefed President-elect Trump and the incoming administration on the intelligence community's assessment that Russia had interfered in the 2006 presidential election. When the briefing concluded, Comey spoke with the president-elect privately to brief him on unverified, personally sensitive allegations compiled by Steele. According to a memorandum, Comey... Drafted immediately after the private discussion, the president-elect began the meeting by telling Comey he had conducted himself honorably over the prior year and had a great reputation. The president-elect stated that he thought kindly of Comey, looking forward to working with him, and hoped that he planned to stay on as FBI director. Comey responded that he intended to continue serving in that role. Comey then briefed the president-elect on the sensitive material in the Steele report. Comey recalled that the president-elect seemed offensive as Comey as Comey tried to assure him that the FBI was not investigating him personally. Comey recalled he did not want the president-elect to think of the conversation as a J Edgar Hoover move. On January 10, 2017, the media reported that Comey had briefed the president-elect on the Steele reporting and BuzzFeed News published information compiled by Steele online, stating that the information included specific, unverified, and potentially unverifiable allegations of contact, contact between Trump aides and Russian operatives. The next day, the president-elect per- expressed concern to intelligence community leaders about the fact that the information had leaked and asked whether they could make public statements refuting the allegations in the Steele reports. In the following weeks, three congressional committees opened investigations to examine Russia's interferences in the election and whether the Trump campaign had colluded with Russia. On January 13, 2017, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, SSCI, announced that it would conduct a bipartisan inquiry into Russian interference in the election, including any links between Russia and individuals associated with political campaigns On January 25th, 2017, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the HPSCI, announced that it had been conducting an investigation into Russian election interference and possible coordination with the political campaigns. And on February 2nd, 2017, the Senate Judiciary Committee announced that it, too, would investigate Russian efforts to intervene in the election. Number three. Flynn makes false statements about his communication with Kislyak to incoming administration officials, the media, and the FBI. On January 2, 2017, a Washington Post columnist reported that Flynn and Kislyak communicated on the day the Obama administration announced the Russian sanctions. The column questioned whether Flynn had said something to undercut the U.S. sanctions and whether Flynn's communications had violated the letter or spirit of the Logan Act. President-elect Trump called Priebus after the story was published and expressed anger about it. Priebus recalled that the president-elect asked, what the hell is this all about? Priebus called Flynn and told him that the president-elect was angry about the reporting on Flynn's conversation with Kislyak. Flynn recalled that he felt a lot of pressure because Priebus had spoken to the boss and said Flynn needed to kill the story. Flynn directed McFarland to call the Washington Post columnist and inform him that no discussions of sanction had occurred. McFarland recalled that Flynn said words to the effect of, I want to kill the story. McFarland made the call as Flynn had requested, although she knew she was providing false information, and the Washington Post updated the column to reflect that a Trump official had denied that Flynn and Kislyak discussed sanctions. When Priebus and other... Incoming administration officials questioned Flynn internally about the Washington Post column. Flynn maintained that he had not discussed sanctions with Kislyak. Flynn repeated that claims to Vice President-elect Michael Pence and to incoming Press Secretary Sean Spicer. In subsequent media interviews in mid-January, Pence, Priebus, and Spicer denied that Flynn and Kislyak had discussed sanctions, basing those denials on their conversations with Flynn.
0: The public statements of incoming administration officials denying that Flynn and Kislyak had discussed sanctions alarmed senior DOJ officials, who were aware that the statements were not true. Those officials were concerned that Flynn had lied to his colleagues, who in turn had unwittingly misled the American public, creating a compromise situation for Flynn because the Department of Justice assessed that the Russian government could prove that Flynn lied. The FBI investigative team also believed that Flynn's calls with Kislyak and subsequent denials about discussing sanctions raised potential Logan Act issues and were relevant to the FBI's broader Russia investigation. On January 20, 2017, President Trump was inaugurated and Flynn was sworn in as National Security Advisor. On January 23rd, 2017, Spicer delivered his first press briefing and stated that he had spoken with Flynn the night before, who confirmed that the calls with Kislyak were about topics unrelated to sanctions. Spicer's statements added to the Department of Justice's concern that Russia had leverage over Flynn because of his lies and could use that derogatory information to compromise him. On January 24th, 2017, Flynn agreed to be interviewed by agents from the FBI. During the interview, which took place at the White House, Flynn falsely stated that he did not ask Kislyak to refrain from escalating the situation in response to the sanctions on Russia imposed by the Obama administration. Flynn also falsely stated that he did not remember a follow-up conversation in which Kislyak stated that Russia had chosen to moderate its response to those sanctions as a result of Flynn's request. Number 4. DOJ officials notify the White House of their concerns about Flynn On January 26, 2017, Acting Attorney General Sally Yates contacted White House Counsel Don McGann and informed him that she needed to discuss a sensitive matter with him in person. Later that day, Yates Yates and Mary McCord, a senior national security official at the Department of Justice, met at the White House with McGann and White House Counsel's Office Attorney James Burnham. Yates said that the public statements made by the vice president denying that Flynn and Kislyak discussed sanctions were not true and put Flynn in a potentially compromised position because the Russians would know that he lied. Yates disclosed that Flynn had been interviewed by the FBI. She declined to answer a specific question about how Flynn had performed during that interview, but she- But she indicated that Flynn's statements to the FBI were similar to the statements that he had made to Pence and Spicer denying that he had discussed sanctions. McGahn came away from the meeting with the impression that the FBI had not pinned Flynn down in lies. But he asked John Eisenberg, who served as legal advisor to the National Security Council, to examine potential legal issues raised by Flynn's FBI interview and his contacts with Kislyak. That afternoon, McGann notified the president that Yates had come to the White House to discuss concerns about Flynn. McGann described what Yates had told him, and the president asked him to repeat it, so he did. McGann recalled that when he described the FBI interview of Flynn, he said that Flynn did not disclose having discussed sanctions with Kislyak, but that there may not have been a crystal clear violation of 18 U.S.C. section 1001. The president asked about Section 1001, and McGahn explained the law to him, and also explained the Logan Act. The president instructed McGahn to work with Priebus and Bannon to look into the matter further, and directed that they not discuss it with any other officials. Priebus recalled that the president was angry with Flynn in light of what Yates had told the White House, and said, not again, this guy, this stuff. That evening, the president dined with several senior advisors and asked the group what they thought about FBI Director Comey. According to Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats, who was at the dinner, no one openly advocated terminating Comey, but the consensus on him was not positive. Coats told the group that he thought Comey was a good director. Coats encouraged the president to meet Comey face-to-face and spend time with him before making a decision about whether to retain him. Number 5. McGann has a follow up meeting about Flynn with Yates. President Trump has dinner with FBI Director Comey. The next day, January 27, 2017, McGann and Eisenberg discussed the results of Eisenberg's initial legal research into Flynn's conduct and specifically whether Flynn may have violated the Espionage Act, the Logan Act, or 18 U.S.C. 1001. Based on his preliminary research, Eisenberg informed McGann that there was a possibility that Flynn had violated 18 U.S.C. Section 1001 and the Logan Act. Eisenberg noted that the United States had never successfully prosecuted an individual under the Logan Act, and that Flynn could have possible defenses, and told McGann that he believed it was unlikely that a prosecutor would pursue a Logan Act charge under the circumstances. That same morning, McGann asked Yates to return to the White House to discuss Flynn again. In that second meeting, McGann expressed doubts that the Department of Justice would bring a Logan Act prosecution against Flynn, but stated that the White House did not want to take an action that would interfere with an ongoing FBI investigation of Flynn. Yates responded that the Department of Justice had notified the White House so that it could take action in response to the information provided. McGann ended the meeting by asking Yates for access to underlying information the Department of Justice possessed pertaining to Flynn's discussions with Kislyak. Also on January 27th, the president called FBI director James Comey and invited him to dinner that evening. Priebus recalled that before the dinner, he told the president something like, don't talk about Russia, whatever you do. And the president promised that he would not talk about Russia at the dinner. McGann had previously advised the president that he should not communicate directly with the department of justice to avoid the perception or reality of political (laughs) interference in law enforcement. (laughs) When Bannon learned about the president's planned dinner with Comey, he suggested that he or Priebus also attend. But the president stated that he wanted to dine with Comey alone. Comey said that when he arrived for the dinner that evening, he was surprised and concerned to see that no one else had been invited. He was concerned. Comey provided an account of the dinner in a contemporaneous memo, an interview with his office, and congressional testimony. According to Comey's account of the dinner, the president repeatedly brought up Comey's future, asking whether he wanted to stay on as FBI director. Because the president had previously said he wanted Comey to stay on as FBI director, Comey interpreted the president's comments as an effort to create a a patronage relationship by having Comey ask for his job. The president also brought up the Steele reporting that Comey had raised in the January 6, 2017 briefing and stated that he was thinking about ordering the FBI to investigate the allegations to prove they were false. Comey responded that the president should think carefully about issuing such an order because it could create a narrative that the FBI was investigating him personally, which was incorrect. Later in the dinner, the president brought up Flynn and said... The guy has serious judgment issues. Comey did not comment on Flynn, and the president did not acknowledge any FBI interest in or contact with Flynn. According to Comey's account, at one point during the dinner, the president stated, I need loyalty. I expect loyalty. Comey did not respond to the conversation, moved on to other topics, but the president returned to the subject of Comey's job at the end of the dinner and repeated, I need loyalty. Comey responded, You will always get loyalty from me. The president said, That's what I want. Honest loyalty. Comey said, You will get that from me. After Comey's account of the dinner became public, the president and his advisor disputed that he had asked for Comey's loyalty. The president also indicated that he had not invited Comey to dinner. (laughs) Telling the reporter... That he thought Comey had asked for the dinner because he wanted to stay on. This guy is nuts. But substantial evidence corroborates Comey's account of the dinner invitation and the request for loyalty. (laughs) The president's daily diary confirms that the president extended a dinner invitation to Comey on January 27th. With respect to the substance of the dinner conversation, Comey documented the president's request for loyalty in a memorandum he began drafting the night of the dinner. Senior FBI officials recall that Comey told them about the loyalty request shortly after the dinner occurred, and Comey described the request while under oath in congressional proceedings and in a subsequent interview with investigators subject to penalties for lying under 18 U.S.C. 1001. Comey's memory of the details of the dinner, including that the president requested loyalty, has remained consistent throughout. <laughs> what a nutty section. I can't. Six, Flynn's resignation. On February 2nd, 2017, Eisenberg reviewed the underlying information relating to Flynn's calls with, Kis- with Kislyak. Eisenberg recalled that he prepared a memorandum about criminal statutes that could apply to Flynn's conduct, but he did not believe that the White House would have enough information to make a definitive recommendation to the president. Eisenberg and McGann discussed that Eisenberg's review of the underlying information confirmed his preliminary conclusion that Flynn was unlikely to be prosecuted for violating the Logan Act. Because White House officials were uncertain what Flynn had told the FBI, however, they could not assess his exposure for prosecution for violating 18 U.S.C. Section 1001. The week of February 6th, Flynn had one-on-one conversation with the President in the Oval Office about the negative media coverage of his contacts with Kislyak. Flynn recalled that the President was upset and asked him for information on the conversations. Flynn listed the specific dates on which he remembered speaking with Kislyak, but the president corrected one of the dates he listed. The president asked Flynn what he and Kislyak discussed, and Flynn responded that he might have talked about sanctions. <laughs> oh, I might have discussed sanctions a little. <sighs> on February 9, 2017, the Washington Post reported that Flynn discussed sanctions with Kislyak the month before the president took office. After the publication of that story, Vice President Pence learned of the Department of Justice's notification to the White House about the content of Flynn's calls. He and other advisors then sought access to and reviewed the underlying information about Flynn's contact with Kislyak. FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who provided the White House officials access to the information, was present when they reviewed it, recalled the officials asking him whether Flynn's conduct violated the Logan Act. McCabe responded that he did not know, and that the FBI was investigating the matter because it was a possibility. Based on the evidence of Flynn's contacts with Kislyak, McGann and Priebus concluded that Flynn could not have forgotten the details of the discussions of sanctions and had instead been lying about what he discussed with Kislyak. Flynn had also told White House officials that the FBI had told him that the FBI was closing out its investigation of him, but Eisenberg did not believe him. After reviewing the materials and speaking with Flynn, McGahn and Priebus concluded that Flynn should be terminated and recommended that course of action to the president. That weekend, Flynn accompanied the president to Mar-a-Lago. Flynn recalled that on February 12, 2017, the return flight to D.C. on Air Force One, the president asked him whether he had lied to the vice president. Flynn responded that he may have forgotten details of its calls, but I don't think he lied. The president responded, Okay, that's fine. I got it. On February 13, 2017, Priebus told Flynn that he had to resign. Flynn said that he wanted to say goodbye to the president, so Priebus brought him into the Oval Office. Priebus recalled that the president hugged Flynn, shook his hand, and said, We'll give you a good recommendation. You're a good guy. We'll take care of you. Talking points on the resignation prepared by the White House counsel's office and distributed to the White House communications team stated that McGann had advised the president that Flynn was unlikely to be prosecuted and the president had determined that the issue with Flynn was one of trust. Spicer told the press the next day that Flynn was forced to resign, not based on a legal issue, but because of a trust issue, where a level of trust between the president and General Flynn had eroded to a point where the president felt he had to make a change. Seven, the president discusses Flynn with FBI director Comey on February 14th, 2017, the day after Flynn's resignation, the president had lunch at the white house with New Jersey governor, Chris Christie. According to Christie, at one point during the lunch, the president said, now that we fired Flynn, the Russia thing's over. Christie had laughed and responded. No way. <laughs> he said, this Russia thing is far from over. And we'll be here on Valentine's Day 2018 talking about this. The president said, What do you mean? Flynn met with the Russians. That was the problem. I fired Flynn. It's over. Christie recalled responding that based on his experience both as a prosecutor and as someone who had been investigated, firing, <laughs> firing Flynn would not end the investigation. Christie said that there was no way to make the investigation shorter, but a lot of ways to make it longer. The president asked Christie what he meant, and Christie told the president not to talk about the investigation, even if he was frustrated at times. Christie also told the president that he would never be able to get rid of Flynn like gum on the bottom of your shoe. (laughs) It's like the one time you should ever listen to Chris Christie.
1: I know. He was a prosecutor.
0: Towards the end of the lunch, the president brought up Comey and asked if Christy was still friendly with him. Christie said he was. The president told Christie to call Comey and tell him that the president really likes him. And tell, call Comey, tell him that I really like him and that he's part of my team.
1: Can we go out on a date? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like eighth ask grade. him if he likes me or Back. if he really,
0: really likes me. <laughs> Does he like, like me, like, like me, me, or does or he, he like, like love like me, me, like
1: me? Can he fill out this <laughs> note?
0: <laughs> the president told Christy to call Comey and tell him that the president really likes him. Tell him he's part of the team. At the end of the lunch, the president repeated his request to Christy that Christy reach out to Comey. Comey had no intention of complying with the president's <laughs> request that he contact Comey. <laughs> 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 he's... He thought the president's request was nonsensical and Christie did not want to put Comey in the position of having to receive such a phone call. Christy thought it would have been uncomfortable to pass on that message. <laughs> and, this is not only does it make you hate Donald Trump, it's humiliating. Oh, yes. At 4 p.m. that afternoon, the president met with Comey Sessions and other officials for a Homeland Security briefing. At the end of the briefing, the president dismissed the other attendees and stated that he wanted to speak to Comey alone. Sessions and senior senior advisor to the president, Jared Kushner, remained in the Oval Office as other participants left. But the president excused them, repeating that he wanted to speak only with Comey. At some point after, At some point after others had left the Oval Office, Priebus had opened the door and the president sent him away. According to Comey's account of the meeting, once they were alone, the president began the conversation by saying, I want to talk about Michael Flynn. The president stated that Flynn had not done anything wrong in speaking with the Russians and had to be terminated because he misled the vice president. The conversation turned to the topic of leaks of classified information, but the president returned to Flynn, saying, he's, he's a good guy, and he's been through a lot. The president stated, I hope that you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go. He's a good guy. I hope you can let this go. Comey agreed that Flynn is a good guy, but did not commit to ending the investigation into Flynn. Comey testified under oath that he took the president's statement as direction because of the president's position and the circumstances of the one-on-one meeting. Shortly after the meeting with the president, Comey began drafting a memorandum documenting their conversation. Comey also met with his senior leadership team to discuss the president's request, and they agreed not to inform FBI officials working on the Flynn case of the president's statements so the officials would not be influenced by the request. Comey also asked for the meeting with Sessions and to request that Sessions not leave Comey alone with the president again. How bad is it that like a man like Comey, who's the director of the FBI, still has these like me too issues. Like, don't leave me alone with that guy. <laughs> he's like he's six, a, nine. <laughs> he's a total creep. Don't leave me alone with that guy. <laughs> Number eight, the media raises questions about the president's delay in terminating and Flint. After Flynn was forced to resign, the press raised questions about why the president waited more than two weeks after the DOJ notif- notification to remove Flynn and whether the president had known about Flynn's contacts with Kislyak before the DOJ notification. The press also continued to raise questions about connections between Russia and the president's campaign. On February 15, 2017, the, president's t- the president told reporters, General Flynn is a wonderful man. I think he's been treated very, very unfairly by the media. Very unfairly. On February 16, 2017, the president held a press conference and said that he removed Flynn because Flynn didn't tell the vice president of the United States the facts, and then he didn't remember. And that just wasn't acceptable to me. The president said that he did not direct Flynn to discuss sanctions with Kislyak, but it certainly would have been okay to me if, if I had. It would have, I would have directed him to do it if I thought that he wasn't doing it. I didn't direct him, but I would have directed him because that's my job. Enlisting the reasons for terminating Flynn, the president did not say that Flynn had lied to him. The president also denied having any connection to Russia, stating, I have nothing to do with Russia. I told you I have no deals there. I have no anything. The president also said that he had nothing to do with WikiLeaks, publication of information hacked from the Clinton campaign. Nine. Nine.
1: The president attempts to have KT McFarlane create a witness statement denying that he directed Flynn's discussion with Kislyak. On February 22, 2017, Priebus and Bannon told McFarland that the president wanted her to resign as deputy national security advisor, but they suggested to her that the administration could make her the ambassador to Singapore. The next day, the president asked Priebus to have McFarland draft an internal email that would confirm that the president did not direct Flynn to call the Russian ambassador about sanctions. Priebus said he told the president he would only direct McFarlane to write such a letter if she were comfortable with it. Priebus called McFarlane into his office to come to convey the president's request that she memorialize in writing that the president did not direct Flynn to talk to Kislyak. McFarlane told Priebus she did not know whether the president had directed Flynn to talk to to Kiesliak about sanctions, and she declined to say yes or no to the request. Priebus understood that McFarland was not comfortable with the president's request, and he recommended that she talk to attorneys in the White House counsel's office. McFarland then reached out to Eisenberg. McFarland told him that she had been fired from her job as deputy national security advisor and offered the ambassadorship in Singapore but that the president and Priebus wanted her to write a letter denying that the president directed Flynn to discuss sanctions with Keyslet. Eisenberg advised McFarlane not to write the requested letter, as documented by McFarlane in a contemporaneous memorandum for the record that she wrote because she was concerned by the president's request. Eisenberg, through the requested email and letter, would be said would be a hard, bad idea. For my side, because this email would be awkward. Why would I be emailing Priebus to to make a statement for the record, but would also be a bad idea for the president because it looked as if my ambassadorial appointment was in some way a quid pro quo. Later that evening, Priebus stopped by McFarland's office and told her not to write the email and to forget he even mentioned it. Around the same time, the president asked Priebus to reach out to Flynn and let him know that the president still cared about him. Priebus called Flynn and said that he was checking in and that Flynn was an American hero. Priebus thought that the president did not want Flynn saying bad things about him. On March 31, 2017, following news that Flynn had offered to testify before the FBI and congressional investigators in exchange for immunity, the president tweeted, Mike Flynn should ask for immunity and that this is a witch hunt. By media and Dems, of course, of historic proportion. In late March or early April, the president asked McFarlane to pass a message to Finn, Flynn telling him the president felt bad for him and that he should stay strong. Analysis In analyzing the president's conduct related to the Flynn investigation, the following evidence is relevant to the elements of obstruction of justice. Number, letter A Obstructive Act. According to Comey's account of his February 14, 2017 meeting in the Oval Office, the president told him, I hope you can see your way clear in letting this go, to letting Flynn go. I hope you can let it go. In analyzing whether these statements constitute an obstructive act, a threshold question is whether Comey's account of the interaction is accurate and if so, whether the president's statement had the tendency to impede the administration of justice by shutting down an inquiry that could result in a grand jury investigation and a criminal charge. After Comey's account of the president's request to let Flynn go became public, the president publicly disputed several aspects of the story. The president told the New York Times that he did not shoo other people out of the room when he talked to Comey and that he did not remember having a one-on-one conversation with Comey. The president also publicly denied that he had asked Comey to let Flynn go, or otherwise communicated that Comey would drop the investigation of Flynn. In private, the president denied aspects of Comey's account to White House advisors, but acknowledged to Priebus that he thought Flynn that he brought Flynn up in the meeting with Comey and stated that Flynn was a good guy. Despite these denials, substantial evidence corroborates Comey's account. First, Comey wrote a detailed memorandum of his encounter with the president on the same day it occurred. Comey also told senior FBI officials about the meeting with the president that day and their recollections of what Comey told them at the time are consistent with Comey's account. Second, Comey provided testimony about the president's request that he let Flynn go under oath in congressional proceedings and in interviews with federal investigators subject to penalties for lying under the U.S. Code. Comey's recollection of the encounters have remained consistent over time. Third, the objective corroborated circumstances of how the one-on-one meeting came to occur support Comey's description of the event. Comey recalled that the president cleared the room to speak with Comey alone after a Homeland Security briefing in the Oval Office, that Kushner and Sessions lingered and had to be shooed away by the president, and that Priebus briefly opened the door during the meeting, prompting the president to wave him away. While the president has publicly denied these details, other administration officials who were present have confirmed Comey's account of how he ended up in a one-on-one meeting with the president and the president acknowledged to Priebus and McGann that he, in fact, spoke to Comey about Flynn in their one-on-one meeting. Fourth, the president's decision to clear the room, and in particular to exclude the attorney general from the meeting, signals that the president wanted to be alone with Comey, which is consistent with the delivery of the message of the type that Comey recalls, rather than a mere innocuous conversation that could have occurred in the presence of the Attorney General. And finally, Comey's reaction to the President's statement is consistent with the President having asked him to let Flynn go. Comey met with the FBI leadership team, which agreed, which agreed to keep the President's statements closely held and not to inform the team working on the Flynn investigation so they would not be influenced by the President's request. Comey also promptly met with the Attorney General to ask him not to be left alone with the President again. An account verified by Sessions, FBI Chief of Staff James Rubicki and Jody Hunt, who was then the Attorney General's Chief of Staff. A second question is whether the President's statements, which were not phrased as a direct order to Comey, could impede or interfere with the FBI's investigation of Flynn. While the President said he hoped Comey would let Flynn go, Rather than affirmatively directing him to do so, the circumstances of the conversation show that the president was asking Comey to close the FBI's investigation into Flynn. First, the president arranged the meeting with Comey so that they would be alone and purposely excluded the attorney general, which suggests that the president meant to make a request to Comey that he did not want anyone else to hear. Second, because the president is the head of the executive branch, when he says that he hopes the subordinate will do something, it is reasonable to expect that the subordinate will do what the president wants. Indeed, the president repeated a version of "Let this go three times," and Comey testified that he understood the president's statements as a directive, which is corroborated by the way Comey reacted at the time b Nexus to a proceeding to establish a nexus to a proceeding. It would be necessary to show that the president could reasonably foresee and actually contemplated that the investigation of Flynn was likely to lead to a grand jury investigation or prosecution. At the time of the president's one-on-one meeting with Comey, no grand jury, no grand jury subpoena had been issued as part of the FBI's investigation into Flynn. But Flynn's lies to the FBI violated federal criminal law. Redacted grand jury and resulted in Flynn's prosecution for violating 18 U.S.C. section 1001. By the time the president spoke to Comey about Flynn, DOJ officials had informed McGann, which informed the president that Flynn's statements to senior White House officials about this contacts with Kislyak were not true and that Flynn had told the same version of events to the FBI. McGann also informed the president that Flynn's conduct could violate 18 U.S.C. 1001. After the vice president and senior White House officials reviewed the underlying information about Flynn's calls on February 10, 2017, they believed that Flynn could not have forgotten his conversation with Kislyak and concluded that he had been lying. In addition, the president's instruction to the FBI director to let Flynn go suggests his awareness (laughs) that Flynn could face criminal exposure for his conduct and was at the, at risk of prosecution.
0: C. Intent As part of our investigation, we examined whether the president had a personal stake in the outcome of an investigation into Flynn. For example, whether the president was aware of Flynn's communications with Kislyak close in time to when they occurred, such that the president knew that Flynn had lied to senior White House officials and that those lies would have been posed passed on to the public. Some evidence suggests that the president knew about the existence and content of Flynn's calls when they occurred, but the evidence is inconclusive and could not be relied upon to establish the president's knowledge. In advance of Flynn's initial call with Kislyak, the president attended a meeting where the sanctions were were discussed and an advisor may have mentioned that Flynn was scheduled to call Kislyak. Flynn told McFarlane about the substance of the calls with Kislyak and said that they may have made a difference in Russia's response. And Flynn recalled talking to Bannon in early January 2017 about how they had successfully stopped the train on the Russians' response to the sanctions. It would have been reasonable for Flynn to have wanted the president to know of his communications with Kislyak because Kislyak told Flynn his request had been received at the highest levels of Russia and that Russia had chosen not to retaliate in response to the request and the president was pleased by the Russian's response, calling it a great move. And the president never said publicly that internally that Flynn had lied to him about the calls with Kislyak. But McFarland did not recall providing the president-elect with Flynn's readout of its calls with Kislyak. And Flynn does not have a specific recollection of telling the president-elect directly about the calls. Bannon also said he did not recall hearing about the calls from Flynn. And in February of 2017, the president asked Flynn what was discussed on the calls and whether he had lied to the vice president, suggesting that he did not already know. Our investigation, accordingly, did not produce evidence that established that the president knew about Flynn's discussions of sanctions before the Department of Justice notified the White House of those discussions in late January 2017. The evidence also does not establish that Flynn otherwise possessed information damaging to the president that would give the president a personal incentive to end the FBI's inquiry into Flynn's conduct. Evidence does establish that the president connected the Flynn investigation to the FBI's broader Russia investigation and that he believed that, as he told Christie, that terminating Flynn would end the whole Russia thing. Flynn's firing occurred at a time when the media and Congress were raising questions about Russia's interference in the election and whether members of the president's campaign had colluded with Russia. Multiple witnesses recalled that the president viewed the Russia investigation as a challenge to the legitimacy of his election. The president paid careful attention to the negative coverage of Flynn and reacted with annoyance and anger when the story broke discussing that Flynn had discussed sanctions with Kislyak. Just hours before meeting one-on-one with Comey, the president told Christie that firing Flynn would put an end to the Russia inquiries. And after Christie pushed back, telling the president that firing Flynn would not end the Russia investigation, the president asked Christie to reach out to Comey and convey that the president liked him and that he was part of the team. That afternoon, the president cleared the room and asked Comey to let Flynn go. We also sought evidence relevant to assessing whether the president's direction to Comey was motivated by sympathy towards Flynn. In public statements, the president repeatedly described Flynn as a good person who had been harmed by the Russia investigation and the, and the president directed advisers to reach out to Flynn to tell him that the president cared about him and felt very bad for him. At the same time, multiple advisers including and Priebus, and Hicks, said that the president had become unhappy with Flynn well before Flynn was forced to resign and that the president was frequently irritated with Flynn. Priebus said that he believed the president's initial reluctance to fire Flynn stemmed not from personal regard, but from concern about the negative press that would be generated by firing the National Security Advisor so early in the administration. And Priebus indicated that the president's post-firing expressions of support for Flynn were motivated by the president's desire to keep Flynn from saying negative things about him. The way in which the president communicated the request to Comey also is relevant to understanding the president's intent. When the president first learned about the FBI investigation into Flynn, he told McGann, Bannon, and Priebus not to discuss the matter with anyone else in the, in the White House. The next day, the president invited Comey for a one-on-one dinner against the advice of an aide who recommended that the other White House officials also attend. At the dinner, the president asked Comey for loyalty and, at a different point in the conversation, mentioned that Flynn had judgment issues. When the president met with Comey the day after Flynn's termination, shortly after being told by Christie that that firing Flynn would not end the Russia investigation, the president cleared the room, even excluding the attorney general, so that he could again speak with Comey alone. The president's decision to meet one-on-one with Comey contravened the advice of the White House counsel, and the president should not communicate directly with the Department of Justice to avoid any appearance of interfering with law enforcement activities. And the president later denied that he cleared the room and asked Comey to let Flynn go, a denial that would have been unnecessary if he believed the request was a proper exercise of prosecutorial discretion. Finally, the president's effort to have McFarland write an internal email denying that the president had directed Flynn to discuss sanctions with Kislyak highlights the president's concern about being associated with Flynn's conduct. The evidence does not establish that the president was trying to have McFarlane lie. The president's request, however, was sufficiently irregular that McFarlane, who did not know the full extent of Flynn's communications with the president and thus could not make a representation the president wanted, felt the need to draft an internal memorandum documenting the president's request of Eisenberg was recurred was. And Eisenberg was concerned that the request would look like a quid pro quo in exchange for an ambassadorship. This concludes part six of Pod Bless Robert Mueller, a translation for Texans, brought to you by the creators of Pod Bless Texas, featuring Lillian Salerno and Kendall Scudder. You did really great work reading this time, Lillian.
1: Hi, yeah, I stayed up I'm reading. This is really interesting. I want to keep reading.
0: We are going to keep reading, but you've got to go to the next episode because this one's already two hours long. Okay. So, so. thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on Part 7, where we're going to pick up on Section C. Bye, y'all.